DW Living Planet with Sarah Stephan. Hello and welcome to Living Planet. As fires are burning in Canada in what's been called an unprecedented wildfire season, with smoke drifting over to the United States and even across the Atlantic Ocean over to European countries, we talk fires and drought today. How should we deal with wildfires? What can we do to prevent the worst? And do controlled fires have a place when it comes to prevention? We need to stop thinking of fires being categorically good or categorically bad and start thinking about fires being a, a necessity. The more we can manage it responsibly, i.e. through prescribed fire, the better off we're going to be in the long run. As the world keeps heating up, we also need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Like, where do we go when certain parts of the world become uninhabitable? And the reason for my migration is basically the effect of climate change. Because my flocks are dying. There is no rainfall. There is no vegetation anymore. The desert is encroaching on us. There is no grass. And there is no water. All that coming up. You're listening to DW's Living Planet. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Smoke from Canada's wildfires has brought some of the worst air quality throughout the Great Lakes region and in parts of central and eastern states of the U.S. The Environmental Protection Agency's airnow.gov website put several regions in the unhealthy or worse categories. Chicago was among those given the very unhealthy label. People in Chicago told reporters they could feel the smoke in the air. I bought this mask because it felt dangerous to breathe the air. I felt like I would be safer wearing a mask around. It's burning on the eyes and burning in the nose. And I don't think this mask is even strong enough. I have an N95, but I think I need a better one. My thoughts on it is I'm glad that my son is not out in it because he does have severe asthma. So I'm glad my son is not out. The smoke has also made its way across the Atlantic. And Canada's wildfires are expected to send even worse smoke-filled air in the coming days, after recent heavy rainfalls failed to fall in areas of Quebec, where the fires are most active, officials said on Wednesday. How can we stop the wildfire crisis and prevent future fires? One option is fighting fire with fire. That sounds counterintuitive? Well, Ashley Blow takes us to Oregon, a state in the Pacific Northwest region of the U.S., where ecologists are hard at work over the spring and summer. In Oregon's Willamette Valley, small bell-shaped flowers unique to the region are starting to open up. In this wetland, the white petals of the bittercress stand out in the lush green grass. But it doesn't look like this along the entire 150-mile-long valley that stretches between the Pacific Ocean and the Cascade Mountain Range. It grows nowhere else in the world as a native species. So that kind of gets at part of why these habitats are important is because there's this host of unique and uncommon and significant plant and animal species that live in these habitats that depend upon the perpetuation of these habitats for their survival. Fire benefits the native species in the prairie habitats. That's Ed Alverson, Natural Areas Coordinator for Lane County Parks near Eugene in Central Oregon. He met me at the nature preserve there to show me how the careful, deliberate burning of prairies is restoring the ecology here. 
It's allowing plants like bittercress to flourish and bringing back threatened species like Fender's blue butterfly. Without this fire, new generations of native plants can't grow. Well, I have a photo here that was taken during our prescribed burn in October, and we can see area that's actively burning. Also within this photo, just in front of us, the area that was mowed is the fire break, which did not burn. And then also there were patches that did not burn just because it was really um, high humidity and we didn't get really good combustion of the fuels throughout. So we have everything here together. We can kind of see the different types of effects side by side, where it's been mowed, where it's been burned, where it hasn't burned at all. To conduct these burns, wildland firefighters use canisters with a metal torch that drips fuel onto the ground and sets the grass ablaze. Amanda Rao is a prescribed fire coordinator for the Oregon Department of Forestry. She directs and plans these ecological burns. Not only is she what firefighters call a burn boss, she's a mom. Oh, this is a caterpillar. She and her little one met Ed and me and the wetlands. You're spending easily 10 times more time planning and getting ready for a burn as you are implementing it. But once the fire's on the ground, then it's really kind of the art and the dance where you're using fire to manipulate where it goes, trying to keep it within the unit that you've identified while also trying to get the effects you want by altering your ignition patterns and their frequency and their timing. And it's, that's the fun part, you know, once you're actually putting fire on the ground and igniting it. Using fire to help things grow might seem counterintuitive, but it's a tool that indigenous peoples have used for time immemorial in this area, the first people of the land, the Kalapuya people, use fire in their cultivation. What the fire does is clear out weedy vegetation that can compete with other native plants trying to root in the soil. With bare ground, seeds have the space to germinate and grow into strong seedlings. Not only do plants like bittercress thrive, but so do the lily-like camas, which is part of the asparagus family their sweet bulb is a traditional food for indigenous peoples in the Northwest. When white settlers came into the region a couple of hundred years ago, that fire stopped as towns and commercial agriculture began to dominate the landscape. Also, in the early 1900s, policies from the federal government mandated that firefighters immediately put out any wildfire in the west of the country. This nearly eradicated fire that for thousands of years played a central part in the natural cycle. I reached out to the Kalapuya tribe and indigenous burning networks, but I was unable to find a time to meet with them before the airing of this episode. Here's Amanda to explain a little more about how these policies caused harm ecologically and culturally. So when we talk about fire exclusion, we're talking about removal of indigenous practices using fire in addition to suppression of fires, and those together are encompassed under exclusion, whereas suppression is just about putting out wildfires. It's really challenging because we have different plant response now to fire and climate than what was historically probably, so that's one thing to consider. You have reconstruction of indigenous histories and cultural practices to lead from. Another challenge in bringing back prescribed fire is what's called the wildland-urban interface. So, how to light fires without harming nearby human populations. Before ecological burning, 
Ed and Amanda are required to coordinate with the Regional Air Pollution Agency on smoke management. If the weather has been too dry or an existing wildfire is already bringing smoke into the area, they can't burn, as that could have an impact on air quality for people living nearby. But without this ecological, strategic burning, thatches of invasive plants and thick forests become like a tinderbox. It's the kind of conditions that feed large, out-of-controlled wildfires that burn long and hot. For mountain towns like nearby Eugene, the third biggest city in Oregon, that's an unsettling reality. These burn treatments are expensive, and a lack of funding adds to the compounding issues of using prescribed fire. Because while wildfires and smoke aren't bound by borders, property ownership is. Resources are limited based on forest ownership, whether they are public or private. I called James Dickinson, a fire ecologist in Oregon and Washington, for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM for short. I asked how government agencies are trying to solve this. Annually, we allow for projects to put in for these granting opportunities. And essentially, the whole goal of the program is to facilitate and foster actions on non-BLM ground, primarily non-BLM ground, that benefits the BLM and the public at large. Called the Community Wildland Fire Assistance Program, people and organizations on the local level can receive financial assistance for prescribed burning on wetlands, like in Eugene, in forest, and sometimes around homes. The program also conducts outreach to help people understand why this proactive fire reduces risk for a disaster. The post-fire landscape is the pre-fire landscape. There is no difference now and never should have been between what are fires a natural part of these ecosystems, uh, most of them. And there is a drastic need for us to, to acknowledge that and utilize fire as a comfortable tool in our management toolbox to deal with not only ecosystem health, but also public safety and other issues, economic issues even that go with it. So we need to stop thinking of fires being categorically good or categorically bad and start thinking about fires being a, a necessity. The more we can manage it responsibly, i.e. through prescribed fire, the better off we're going to be in the long run. That's exactly what Ed and Amanda are seeing at their nature preserve, where the BLM has funded some of their burns over the last 30 years. Data collected over that time shows that fire-adapted plants gradually increase in population size and density. Often, burns happen in the fall, and some grass starts to grow back as soon as two weeks later. But it's after the winter season when things really come to life. I mean, that's what I do it for. When I come back afterwards and see all the flowers and the reduction of the things that were encroaching upon them, that's generally when I get the reward. I mean, the fire is fun, but I don't do it for that. I do it for what comes afterwards the following spring. For DW, I'm Ashley Blow in Seattle, Washington. Another option, rather than setting fire, is clearing away shrubs manually, or with a little help from goats and sheep. Such as in Spain, that's been hit by forest fires much earlier than usual this year. According to estimates by the European Forest Fire Information System, more than 60,000 hectares of forest and scrubland have already been destroyed by over 300 fires between the beginning of this year and May. 
Parts of the country have also been in the grips of a drought for months, further complicating the situation. Franca Wels went to find out more at a forest fire prevention mission near the capital Madrid. Ineke Mules has the story. Fire prevention is not a quiet business. Above the village of Villanueva del Padillo, emergency services clad in green protective clothing walk down a slope. Among other methods, they use chainsaws to work on the holm oaks. But instead of chopping at their trunks, they trim their crowns to put as much distance as possible between the tree branches and the ground. Marta Jerez de la Vega is in charge of the forest fire service of the fire brigade in the community of Madrid. This is just one of the preventative measures they carry out throughout the year to prevent forest fires in the region. The idea is to prepare strategic management areas where the amount of combustible material will be greatly reduced, like shrubs and biomass. So if a forest fire breaks out, it will be as harmless as possible. We're preparing a whole network of protected zones in which we'll be able to fight fires relatively safely. There are numerous fire breaks in the area each several hundred metres wide. Holm oaks, which generally don't ignite so easily, are allowed to grow here, but the highly flammable undergrowth is not. Different brigades all get involved in the clear-up. Heavy machinery, including a large red tractor, pulls a gigantic scarifier across the ground. Bushes and shrub are crushed. It looks like mindless destruction, but it's actually all part of an elaborate system. José Miguel Abore is a forestry technician. In his bright yellow protective clothing, he looks like a walking signal mast. He explains what they're doing. This is a combined job using a ground brigade and heavy machinery. The tractors start by removing the undergrowth, for example. Then the ground brigade takes over the areas that the tractor cannot reach. For example, areas directly around the trees, particularly stony areas or steep slopes. Whatever one brigade saws, chops or rips out, another brigade will order in long rows. Then the tractor shreds the material. The groups of ten work their way through the mountainside like this, metre by metre. Or rather, maintain the work they've already done here. Work was originally done here around six to eight years ago, so now we're working to keep the area in optimal condition. Over the next few years, it will also be maintained by the cattle that come back here to control the regrowth. It's hoped that if a fire does break out in this area, it could weaken in one of the zones which have been mostly cleared of flammable material. Marta Jerez de la Vega says it's also important to actively involve farm animals in the mountains, including sheep, goats or horses, and their owners, in forest fire prevention. We make contracts with the farmers. If these strips, which have just been cleared, grow back and their cattle keep the vegetation at bay, we will pay them for it. So the cattle can roam anywhere in the forest, but if they graze more intensively in these areas, they're our allies and they're doing a job which earns their farmers money. Last year, 
a particularly bad forest fire year for Spain. The weather conditions were much worse than in previous years. Last year was a bad year, but we still achieved good results and we have been able to support and help the surrounding communities that have faced much more dangerous and complicated situations. A lot of physical work is carried out on the mountain itself, but there is a lot of research done behind the scenes too. For almost 20 years now, Spain has been working on building so-called fuel models to predict wildfire patterns. This refers to vegetation that could catch on fire. It helps researchers estimate how intense a fire could be and how high the flames could get. With this work, we are modifying the fuel oil, which would otherwise be an untreated mountain, where we can expect 20-metre-high flames. Very high heat intensifies to the point that it's impossible for even a firefighter to get close enough to extinguish it. After all, preventing forest fires isn't just about nature conservation, but also about protecting human lives, especially those of firefighters. Inneke Mules with a story by Franka Wels. Two-thirds of French water tables are below normal levels for June. That's according to the French Environment Minister Christophe Bichy. Over the last 18 months, France has been hit by the worst drought in its history. So, how do you prepare for that? France is building huge water storage basins in the west of the country. In winter, water is pumped into them. In the summer months, farmers use the water to irrigate their fields. But critics say this solution isn't sustainable. Jennifer Collins has more with this story by Friederike Hoffmann. It's seven in the morning and breakfast time on this farm in Nallier in western France. When the cows hear the organic farmer Jan Dub's tractor, they trot to the wall, around their stall and stick their heads through the fence. Dubes drives slowly along the wall and unloads the feed. The cows dig in immediately, and the farmer looks on happily. We always have good fodder, thanks to our irrigation. If we didn't have that, it would be much worse. If the feed isn't good, the cows won't produce high-quality milk, says Dubes. That's why cows' nutrition is so important. The organic farmer produces milk for cheese. He grows the cow fodder himself. But the soil around Vendée where his farm is located, is lime-rich and dry, so he has to irrigate some of the fields. We irrigate about 80 hectares. We water a few different crops, including our forage crop, alfalfa, for the animals. Dubes drives his car to where he collects 95% of his water. A wall, several metres high, stands in the middle of some fields and behind a fence. Behind it is a large artificial reservoir, a crater lined with plastic foil, filled with a shimmering blue turquoise. 
This reservoir is filled in winter. The water is pumped up from ground reserves through wells spread all over the area. But there are strict rules about when you can draw the groundwater. In summer, farmers pump the water from here to the fields, like Dupes Field of Peas, just a few kilometres away. The farmer uses a large automatic irrigation machine which sprays water from a hose in a high arc onto the field. This so-called basin storage system is public and open to all farmers in the region. But excess water can only be drawn when reserves are high enough. Recently, Dubs' water consumption was cut by 20%. We are allocated a certain amount of water every year. We are only allowed to irrigate from April to the end of October. We meet every two weeks with all the stakeholders. Then there is a decision about whether the situation has gotten worse and we have to use less. Before the basin system was set up, farmers in the region pumped groundwater directly. The consequences for the water table were drastic. So around 20 years ago, authorities started building the first basins. Anoul Charpentier and his colleagues from the Water Authority manage 20 storage basins in the region, as well as the entire water supply. There haven't been many studies on the impact of the basins on groundwater levels. The region's holistic approach has been beneficial, though, believes Charpentier. Thanks to water storage and strict regulations, we've been able to reduce water withdrawals by 60% compared to the 1990s. And the water table is two to three meters higher than it was then. That's why Charpentier is so annoyed that the storage basins have gotten such a bad rap. The reason for the criticism lies 80 kilometers away in Saint Celine. The idyllic village has 350 residents, and the streets are lined with stone houses, colorful shops, and flowers. But just three months ago, this quiet place became a symbol for France's water woes. Plans are afoot to build a huge water storage basin that will store enough groundwater to fill 250 Olympic-sized swimming pools. A private initiative is slated to run the basin, which only a small share of farmers in the region will be connected to. Opponents say it amounts to water privatisation and promotes industrial farming that depletes scarce resources and uses too much water. In March, Thousands of demonstrators flooded the village to protest the basin. Violence ensued, and many were injured. Mayor Julien Chasson recalls what happened. At that time, there were simply a lot of hooded people here, some of them armed. Of course, that's a stark shock in our quiet rural setting here. We set up psychological counselling after that. While the villagers try to process the violent scenes they witnessed, the storage basins are still the subject of huge debate in France. Around 100 basins are dotted around the country, according to estimates. For Mayor Julien Chasson, the debate gets to a fundamental question. This whole discussion about the basins made a lot of people realize the role that irrigation plays in agriculture and that it even exists. A few kilometers away, scientist Vincent Bretagnol walks through a forest with his binoculars. He's been researching water and agriculture for years. 
Storage basins are a very technical intervention, he says. They're also expensive to build and pumping the water requires electricity. And storage basins are just one of many solutions. More important is to address the underlying problem, and that means restoring disappearing nature. We need to improve the ecosystem. That means we must create meadows and pastures again. We've lost almost three quarters in the last 50 years. But these help store water and replenish groundwater reserves. The same goes for hedgerows and trees. Jennifer Collins with a report by Friederike Hoffmann. Where do you go when there's no water anymore? That's a question farmers in Nigeria are asking themselves, as they're already feeling the effects of climate change. By some estimates, by 2050, 1.2 billion people could be displaced globally due to climate change and natural disasters. George Okachi has more, with this report by Anne Bayer and some additional reporting from the desk. Like his father before him, Mohamed Mosa is a farmer and livestock breeder. For the most part, he loves his job and tending to the goats, sheep and chickens on his farm. Mosa used to live and work in Nigeria's northern Sokoto state. But just over a year ago, he moved south to Cheza, not by choice, he says, but because the climate crisis forced him to. And the reason for my migration is basically the effect of climate change, because my flocks are dying. They are dying because of there is no rainfall, enough rainfall, or even lack of it. There is no vegetation anymore. The desert is encroaching on us. There is no grass, and there is no water. In Mosa's case, it was the drought that drove him and his family to move south. But other parts of Nigeria are dealing with extreme weather too. In late 2022, southern Nigeria experienced its most devastating rainfall and flooding in a decade. Hundreds of people drowned and about 1.3 million others were displaced. Houses, farmland and roads were destroyed. And cholera outbreaks were linked to water sources being contaminated by flood water. Meteorologists predicted these floods and climate researchers have for many years been warning that if carbon emissions continue unchecked, extreme weather events like this will only become more and more common. One study, for example, found that the floods were made 80 times more likely by climate change. David Michael Terungwe is a team leader with the Global Initiative for Food Security and Ecosystem Preservation in Nigeria. In his role, he monitors the effects of rising global temperatures in Nigeria and elsewhere. So if you look at, you know, the Sahel region, the dry region, you're looking at Mali, Burkina Faso, you know, some parts of Niger, Chad and, and all of these regions. There are millions of people in this you know, region and their livelihood is totally dependent on the environment. Mm. So if you cannot find water, what will you do? Many people work in Nigeria's agricultural sector. If rising temperatures lead to diminishing harvests, there will not only be less to eat, but also serious consequences for the country's economy. David Michael Terungwe says urgent action is needed. The climate is changing, so we too must change. The way we build our houses must change. The way we practice agriculture must also change. We need to restore 
afforestation. We have to address, you know, this issue of flooding in the country because of the impact it's having on infrastructure and livelihood and the people. And Mohamed Musa has a proposal for how the Nigerian government could improve his life and that of his animals. One of the things that I believe that the government can do is come up with a program of planting trees. There are certain species of trees that are resistant to disease and they don't need that much water. So I believe if several thousands are planted, some of them will help in arresting the desertification. Nigeria needs to prepare for and adapt to ever more extreme weather events, which climate scientists have repeatedly shown are linked to fossil fuel emissions largely coming from the global north. George Okachi with a report by Anna Bayer. And that wraps up the show for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you have feedback or topics you want covered, climate questions you want addressed on the show, you can always reach out to us at livingplanet at dw.com. Today's studio technician was Thomas Schmidt. I'm Sarah Steffen. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Bye for now.